are too many cables. There are too many cables and not enough not enough inputs. It's the problem with Max. It's the problem with the new Max. Didn't used to be the problem until I destroyed the old one. Alright. You ready? You ready? Hi, this is Mark. And this is Emily. And, and we, we can, can do, do this, this all day. day! A podcast where we review all the movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We'll go through each film in the MCU chronologically and discuss our overall impressions, things we liked, things we didn't like, and everything in between. We hope you'll tune in and stay with us until the end of the line. Emily, good evening. I'm so proud of you, because in the last episode you said chronologically. Yeah, I, and when I noticed was, that. And huh? when I was editing that, I had to hear it probably 17 times. Chronicologically. Chronicologically. I know. I'm surprised you didn't call me out on that earlier, like in the middle of the recording. Eh, it was too late. Couldn't be well, bothered. Either way, we're back. We're back. We're back. Our second episode, our first actual review uh, to everyone everyone who's listened to our first episode. Thank you so much. Uh, Emily and I have, especially Emily, put an awful lot of work, blood, sweat, and tears into this. She even sacrificed a laptop to get us <laughs> where we are today. So uh, we're ready to rock and roll with our first review. How are you doing tonight, Emily? I'm good, yeah. Got the new laptop. Got about 17 dongles, as they're <laughs> called, to power everything that is in my little recording space. It is quite, you know, what we've had to do to get all this set up is, is pretty neat. Emily is in her closet, and, you know, I can see her on FaceTime right now. She's, it's like she's in an escape pod, you know, on a... The hatch. <laughs> she's in escape, the hatch. She's in an escape pod on, like, a rebel blockade runner, and I'm in my, I'm in my closet with a bunch of wool blankets as sound baffles it's it's pretty surreal but we do whatever it takes to bring you this podcast speaking of thanks i i had to give a shout out to our moms because i know both of them <laughs> listened to it i know mom did and she was real happy and i know your, your mom put that facebook post about it so she did she sent me a message and she was like your podcast is so cute. I love it so much. <laughs> and she asked how we, you know, how we recorded it and how we set it up. I think she she maybe forgot that that's what I went to college for <laughs> the first time around. Mom's, my mom said, you know, oh, you sound, you sound so great. I think this is wonderful. I don't understand anything of what you're talking about, but it sounded really good. That's so. the same with my mom. So, again, thanks to all of our listeners. You know, it took us a little long to get that first episode out than we wanted to because Emily's first laptop took an accidental bath but um, we're ready to go and we are here tonight to talk about our first film chronologically the first film to take place in the MCU Captain America the first Avenger which opened up July 22nd 2011 it was technically the fifth MCU film released after Iron Man, Incredible Hulk, Iron Man 2, and Thor, starring Chris Evans, Tommy Lee Jones, Hugo Weaving, Haley Atwell, and of course, ya boy, ya Sebastian boy. Stan. There he is. There'll be one or two things said about Bucky during this pro podcast, <laughs> I promise you. Screenplay by Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely, who would write all three Cat movies, plus Thor The Dark World with Christopher Yost, 
Infinity War and Endgame. So they have uh, quite a lot to do with this franchise. And the film was directed by Joe Johnston, famous for having directed Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Jumanji, and October Sky, which was the first time I remember seeing Jake Gyllenhaal. And uh, just a quick note for me, I, I, one of the reasons I really love this film, it's, it's a return to sort of the World War II era pulp genre for Joe Johnston. He directed The Rocketeer in 1991, which is one of my favorite kind of pulpy comic bookish World War II action thrillers. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend you check it out. There is a lot of Rocketeer DNA in Captain America the First Avenger. The movie went on to make about 370.6 million at the box office on a budget of roughly half that. By all indications, pretty much a success. So that's all the vital stats for the movie. Overall impressions of the film. Before you get started, I do want to interrupt you. On a scale of like your number one movie of the MCU to Thor The Dark World, which I think we might both place towards the bottom, unfortunately, and we'll talk more about that, of course, when we get there. Where would you rank this movie before we even get started? This, as we talked about in our last podcast, I put this at number six. I, I struggled between putting this and Avengers at number five. Ultimately, Avengers won. If I could reward a 5.5, the uh, first Avenger would get it. Um, but we don't do that. We don't do decimals. So nope. number six. It gets a number six, which is still pretty darn good in a canon of, like, what, 26 films? Yeah, not bad. And I'm trying to remember, did you have, you had that in your top five, didn't you? I didn't. I had Winter Soldier and Civil War. Civil War. That's right. But where would you put this one? I think I would put this one in, I'd put it in the top ten for sure. It's not one that I rewatch a lot, so there's not much, there's not often an occasion that I pull this movie out and rewatch it, but I'd put it in the top 10, probably. So given that, I guess I had pulled out when I was rewatching the film this week, sort of the two quotes that, in my opinion, kind of say the most about this movie. The first one is Dr. Abraham Erskine talking to Steve Rogers before the serum gets injected into him. And he says, whatever happens tomorrow, you must promise me one thing, that you will stay who you are, not a perfect soldier, but a good man. I was going to try to read that like Stanley Tucci, but it's, <laughs> it's kind of late. I'm, I'm good at impersonations, but I wasn't sure I was going to get that one. And of course, the other one, Steve's talking about why he wants to join the war effort. And he just says, I don't like bullies. I don't care where they're from. So I just kind of pulled those out there because those really stuck with me as being, uh, in many ways, the meat of who Cap is and what this movie's about. So the story what do we want to say about the story? I mean, I thought it was a great origin story. I understand why they made Iron Man first, but this movie really lays down so much of the groundwork for what we see later on, like Hydra and the origins of S.H.I.E.L.D., and the Stark family, the Tesseract, of course, which is the first Infinity Stone we see. So those are kind of my ruminations about the story. The way this movie looks, the way it's shot, the way it's colored, I, I love it because it it just really has that World War II feel. There's just something about the way, sort of the, the slight dullness to the color that it looks like, um, it just looks very much like it's of that era. I don't, I don't know if it's the way the filters are, are on the cameras or what they do with the color timing, but I, it's just got that sort of retro feel to it, World War II-ish, um, that sheen, um, the USO show scene, I love that. You know, you've got, you know, it looks like a Busby Berkeley production number. 
with the musical and the dancing girls and all that. And just a quick note, the uh, punching Hitler bit, that's straight out of the cover of Captain America comic book number one. I have that as a poster in my living room. That's right. I've seen that. Yep. The classic image. Uh, you know, I love the, the, the pulpy Hydra vehicles, like you know, Red Skull's car and the tanks and the, the bomber at the end, of course, with all this you know, jet technology, all this stuff that shouldn't have existed during World War II. Oh, I love the bomber. I was thinking about that um, when I watched it. I was like, mm, that looks like something that shouldn't exist until the 80s. <laughs> it's, and you know, all the, it's got like computer screens in it and everything, but they, but they look like they run on like Analog. transistors, yeah. <laughs> transistors and tubes and things like that, like diodes. Um, it was, I really enjoyed that. Like I said, it's, it's kind of a very pulpy, something out of a, a comic book serial that would have been out during the second world war. Uh, it's also got a very Indiana Jones-ish feel to it. You know, it's got that pulpy World War II feel. It's got Nazis. It's got that score by Alan Silvestri that's just very rousing. And you got the Captain America march that's in some ways vaguely reminiscent of the Raiders march. You've even got, there's that line that the Red Skull says, you know, let the Fuhrer dig for his trinkets in the desert. You know, clearly an allusion to Raiders of the Lost Ark. So there's a lot of, a lot of uh, Indiana Jones in this film too. And I was thinking um, last week when you said about Winter Soldier having that um, sort of spy thriller feel, I feel like there still is a bit of that in this one as well. That scene where they go in to get the serum and the old lady in the hat shop comes out and she goes, oh, lovely weather we're having. And Peggy goes, yes, but I always carry an umbrella and I can't not think about Kingsman. Yeah. Like, I know that they're not impacted by each other at all, but I just immediately was like, this is a spy movie. Like, at least on Peggy Carter's side, like, you know, she's a spy. Like, that's what she ends up doing after after Cap goes down in the ice anyway. So she sort of brings that spy thriller feel to it on top of the action superhero war movie. Well, she goes by the name Agent Carter in the film. So clearly that's, she knows... That's her business, and that's what she's been doing. In addition to all the all the fighting and hand-to-hand -hand combat and weapons training, she clearly knows espionage. So, yeah, that's definitely woven into the DNA of this film. This, of course, the fifth Marvel movie to come out, but it's still still one of the early ones. And I thought it was really smart of Marvel early on to have a lot of those early films directed by fairly established directors, or at least directors that had done a few films, had a few films under their belt. We got John Favreau, Kenneth Branagh, Joe Johnston, Joss Whedon to a slightly lesser extent. It lends a little bit of name recognition and credibility because, you know, with those Marvel films, these origin films for the most part, unless you're an avid comic reader, with the exception of Spider-Man perhaps, you, you probably don't know a whole lot about the likes of Iron Man or Captain America or Thor. One of the reasons I think the DC films may have struggled is because it's like everybody knows who Superman and Batman are, and they people have preconceived notions of them. And this kind of helps the MCU producers because they don't have to compete with preconceived notions of those characters. But since the characters are mostly unknown, it's like you better tell their origin stories right so that people do remember them later on. And I think, you know, by and large, Marvel succeeded wildly in this regard. Yeah, and I think I agree with you of, like, 
a lot of the Marvel characters are kind of unknowns before the movies came out. Because you're right, I think before that I knew Batman and Superman and I knew Spider-Man. And outside of like X-Men and, you know, the other sort of superhero type things that a young kid would get into, I didn't really... I think I probably knew that Captain America was a character that existed, but like Iron Man, Hulk, anything like that. Yeah, Iron Man was, at the time, Iron Man was like a third tier, third tier person, even within the Marvel comic book universe. And now, because of these movies and you know, Robert Downey Jr.'s amazing portrayal as Tony Stark, everyone knows who Iron Man is and you know, everyone knows who Captain America is. Heck, people even know who Ant-Man and the Guardians of the Galaxy are now and you know back when those films were first proposed everyone was like what what's this guardians of the galaxy that'll never work ant-man that'll never work and you know they were all hits marvel seems to know what they're doing and so something else that i wanted to sort of mention in this film and i talked about it a little bit with black panther is how much research they put they put in to making something look authentic so like you said with the pulpy world war ii feel with the coloring of the movie and the way they did it but also sort of specifically with like the way things look so the way people are dressing and the way people like the cars that they drive and the way they interact with each other um but specifically sort of the thing that i always liked is you know the uniforms like the outfits and because that stuff changes sort of all the time and there was um a while ago i read um, a post online that was more for use in like the fan fiction world, but it was detailing sort of how accurate Marvel was with uniforms, like spe specifically with this movie. And so they talked about how, how all the Howleys had sort of an outfit that was sort of connected to their, you know, like their country or their art military part that the installation that they were a part of but how they sort of turned it and made it their own but still mm -hmm. made it realistic to the time period and so they focused specifically on bucky of course which is how i found it but they they talk about just all the different layers of the outfit and even though you never see all of those layers i can imagine that marvel thought through you know every little step of that uniform and every little step of all of the other Howley's uniforms to make it as authentic as they could. Yeah, there's some there's some amazing detail on the costumes, everything. You, you talk about the Howling Commandos outfits. Yeah, you look at like <laughs> Dum Dum Dugan wearing the bowler yeah. in, in the middle of a fight and he's got that vest that it's, you know, on the one hand it looks it looks very contemporary, but there's a little twist to it. It looks like it's got some sort of a, you know, like a Kevlar-esque covering to it or sheen to it but it still looks like a, a vest that someone might have worn in the 1940s probably i'm assuming howard stark did some sort of upgrade to that uh, to that vest so observations just some things that we've noticed while watching the film the first thing that that i noticed at very the very beginning of the film when we finally get back to the 1940s after the little you know intro in the arctic in the present day tonsberg norway we're assuming that if y'all are listening to this podcast, you've either A, seen all the Marvel movies and don't and can't get spoiled, or B, you don't mind being spoiled. So I hope you don't mind being spoiled because I'm going to spoil it. Tunsberg, Norway, the future home of New Asgard, which didn't occur to me until I rewatched it just this past week. Wait a minute, that's right, Tunsberg, that's New Asgard. And going into that, that church or whatever, you, you see the picture of Yggdrasil, the world tree, 
on the door with all the nine realms and this film having just come out like two months after Thor I think the timing of that was was pretty perfect regardless of whether or not you saw Thor first because if you saw Thor first you can look at the door and say hey I remember that from two months ago and if it's the first film you see it'll hopefully stick in your mind. We talked at length this past week about like the recurring theme of winter and ice and cold that tends to run through this trilogy. I mean, in this film, the whole movie opens up in the Arctic, Bucky quote-unquote dies in a snow setting, and Cap has to ditch the plane in the Arctic, and he goes into the ice for 70 years. Captain America the Winter Soldier, the title of the film is The Winter Soldier, Civil War opens up in Siberia, you've got that final battle there, where all the Winter Soldiers are on ice, and in the end Bucky has to go back into the ice to keep himself from going crazy, so definitely a recurring theme, especially throughout the Captain America movies. Well, there's lots of other recurring themes in this movie that you see in the other movies. Even before Steve gets the shield, he's using anything as a shield. Like, in that mm -hmm. first fight in the alley, he's got the trash can lid, and then... After the serum, when he's chasing the spy, he's got the taxi door as a shield. And then, mm -hmm. of course, shield itself being founded after that. And then even, you know, this seemed super insignificant when I watched it, but Schmidt is in exile by Hitler. That's what one of the guys who comes in to observe all of his work says, that he's been sent into exile, and then Schmidt is in exile in Endgame. That's right. On Nowhere. That's brilliant. Yeah, I hadn't. I hadn't noticed that before. That's a neat connection. And the other one that I saw, too, was before Bucky dies off the train, Bucky and Steve are standing on the edge before they go off into the mountains, and they're talking about, you know, remember that time we rode the cyclone on Coney Island? And they're having that same conversation in Serbia before they go into the base in Winter so or in Civil War. Did they? I must have forgotten that. All right. Or it's It's incredibly similar. It's, you know... Oh, you used all my hot dog money or whatever. Like, it's a similar conversation of, like, a shared experience that they're having with, like, the visual being almost the same. Yeah, because that's their, that's their common frame of reference was back in the day. Yeah. And then the, the last one that I thought of was when Steve wakes up in the future, they call a Code 13, and Sharon Carter is Agent 13 in Winter Soldier. Another one I hadn't noticed. I'll yeah. have to look up references to the number 13 in the MCU. And on that topic of waking up in the future, though, I know that, like, they didn't want to freak him out by him waking up in the future, but they did a really bad job, like a really bad setup job of creating the 40s. Do you think it didn't, do you think it didn't look accurate enough? Or maybe Steve's just too good at figuring out that he's being deceived? I mean, it's possible, but I think maybe they forgot, you know, the enhancement, the serum en enhances everything. So he was already pretty smart. Like you see him when he's unpacking at boot camp, he's got all those books with him. Mm -hmm. And so he's clearly pretty smart. And so the idea that they would play a baseball game from 41, knowing that he went into the ice well after that. And like, I think that, you know, the game is what tipped him off. Like, that's what he says. But I think they probably could have pushed it a little bit longer if they had just thought a little bit more. And I, because I don't want to assume, and I wouldn't assume that S.H.I.E.L.D. as a whole are a bunch of idiots, because they're clearly not. Do you think it would have been better had they just outright told him? Or, I mean, Nick Fury says, we thought we'd bring it to you slowly. Do you think that was not the right thing to do? I don't know. I think Steve was going to probably have a, like, an epic breakdown anyway. And I don't think it would just be because he's in the future, but because in his mind, I guess, he maybe wasn't successful 
Because I, I don't know if he was, if he fully realized that by putting the plane into the water that he wasn't going to come back out. But I don't know. I think it was kind of like a, a weak attempt that I wouldn't expect from a fully functioning by then shield. I, I guess I'm just, I'm probably willing to chalk it up to, well, you talk about just said everyone getting to learning this whole world of superpowered beings. Steve probably had no idea that he was actually going to survive that crash. And I guess I'll give S.H.I.E.L.D. the benefit of the doubt this time. I'm guessing they, as as super as they know Steve to be from all the records and so forth, it was still 70 years earlier, and they may not be fully aware. Or perhaps they didn't take it as seriously that, in addition to being super strong and healing and, and all that stuff, that he he's perceptive and he's really smart. I mean, I like, I like how earlier on in the movie, after he rescues Bucky and he's looking... You see him looking at that map on the wall of where all the other Hydra bases are located. You can kind of see him committing those to memory. And, you know, if I'd done that, I'd have forgotten about all those locations within like five seconds. But Steve memorized where all of them were, and that map was far away. So clearly he has a certain perceptive ability that's been heightened by the serum. They actually talk about that in the comics, too. But it was kind of nice to see that in the film, and I'm guessing maybe that's just what was going on in S.H.I.E.L.D. He's, they just they underestimated how perceptive he is, and yeah, they probably picked a bad ball game to play to him. Well, I guess, yeah. I guess it does sort of follow him through to the first Avengers movie, and I guess even through Winter Soldier, that they assume that he's going to be just someone who follows orders and does what he's told and doesn't ask any questions, but you can see in, you know, the first Avengers movie that he goes looking for Phase 2 stuff. And then in Winter Soldier, when he sort of pushes back on Project Insight, and they're like, oh, but, like, they kind of make it sound like, oh, but wouldn't you be okay with that? You know, I thought you were, you know, part of the club. I thought you were in on it. And so maybe they just assume that he would be chill <laughs> with that kind of stuff. That Well, they probably did. I mean, because that's... We've got this this image of Cap as a Boy Scout that you know followed him through the war, and presumably that's what they thought of him when they dug him out out of the ice. And yeah, I think his character arc throughout the entire movie series, you get to see him go from being the, the sort of the dutiful soldier to someone who questions things and you know is willing to break the rules to do the right thing, and sort of a parallel slash you know, opposite Joni of journey that Tony Stark takes, you know, kind of the rogue renegade, do whatever he wants for himself, and, you know, by the end, he's, you know, a team player and ready to make the ultimate sacrifice. Well, and I guess, again, that goes back to one of my points that I've always had, is that people want to play Bucky as the bad boy, and Steve as this, like, goody two-shoes character, again, because of those sort of Boy Scout feel, but, like, Steve's really chaotic, and as a fellow chaotic person, I understand that. Like, I, <laughs> I feel that, you know? Like, he has a good side, and he has his morals, and he clearly knows where he stands, but I think because it's you know, he sort of decides, like, there's not really... He's not really following a certain path. He's sort of following his own compass there. And so I wonder I wonder if that's part of it, that there's this assumption that he is, you know, this good kid. And it's like, well, he did just get in a fight that morning with someone. And then he also lied on his enlistment forms five times to get here. <laughs> and, you know, Bucky, you know, of course, because of everything that happens to him, does get played as this bad boy. But, like... He just wants to go to the science convention and have a nice time. 
All right. Well, hang on a minute. Hang on. Okay. I still want. I see your point, but I think you have to think about intentions here. Yeah, Steve is you know, breaking the law, trying to to get enlisted, and they got into a fight with the the guy at the movie theater just that morning. But he's doing this because he he wants to help out. He wants to get involved in the war. I think he's got a very altruistic goal in mind. That's why he's doing what he's done, even if it's illegal. In the case of the whole enlistment thing, yeah, Bucky. Bucky's going to the Stark Expo, but you know, I think he's just, you know, he's he's trying to have his he's trying to have his one last night with the the lady friends before he before he gets deployed. Uh, he's clearly trying to play himself as the ladies' man in that in that scenario. I think nothing nefarious, but you know, he wanted to go have a good time. But he's also watching out for his friend, and I think that's you know initially probably why did he did they have the draft in World War Two? I can't remember. Oh yeah. Did he get drafted or did he, did he enlist? Not sure. They well back then it was just sort of in the public conscience to to enlist. That's just what you did when your country was at war. You signed up. But so I I'm guessing I'm guessing Bucky enlisted of his own accord. We don't know that for sure, but I'm I'm guessing he did. Just like Steve wanted to do. But I think another thing about Bucky though is he kind of feels like he has to do certain things. I think Steve maybe feels like um, it's like his purpose, you know, to go after bullies. And I think a lot of Bucky's characterization feels like sometimes he's being like dragged along (laughs) sometimes. And I think maybe for the most part, at least when it comes to Steve, he doesn't really mind it. But I was thinking you can sort of see this. And I'm not sure if maybe he knows like if he's just sort of always looking for something bad to happen. But you can see it even, like, in his eyes, like, even at the expo, when he sort of has this, like, sullen face where he's not sure about the future or whatever, and then you continue to see it, but just sort of even more so after Azano. When they break out, you can sort of see how much different he looks from his hey, don't do anything stupid until I get back to, you know, you're taking all the stupid with you part at the science fair. And then after they bring everybody back from Azano, his face, when he says, like, let's hear it for Captain America, that's not just exhaustion. Like, I think that's whatever Zola put in him, you know, amplified. His whole demeanor really changes after he's rescued. It's, it was always been my observation that Bucky gets real serious from that point on, you know, that he's not there's none of that banter or joking like like back at the Stark Expo. He's just kind of all business, you know, he's doing his sniper thing. You, you see more I, I see more Winter Soldier from that point on than I do Bucky. I'm wondering if it's the serum. I mean, you know, they were talking about Erskine talks about how the serum makes good, great and bad worse. And we know that Schmidt's, you know, the Red Skull Serum, was somewhat badly formulated and that it, it really messed him up when he tried it on himself. So I imagine it had a similar effect on Bucky when it was given to him. Maybe a bit less severe because <laughs> Bucky's not inherently a psychopath like Schmidt is. But yeah, I think there's clearly a change in demeanor. Well, I'm curious, what do you think... Let me go back a bit to to pre-serum Bucky. We talked about him, you know, watching out for Steve and all that. I mean, what do you think was sort of Bucky's kind of motivation? What do you think he was in the war for? What do you think he was all about before the serum? I think it's probably just an extension of, you know, like he's used to looking out for somebody. You know, he's used to looking out for Steve. 
even if Steve can defend himself to an extent. And so I think, you know, he probably feels sort of like an older sibling sense of obligation, I would guess. And I think because you can already see like a little bit of his, what did <laughs> one of our friends who has not watched any of the Marvel movies, but knows about Bucky, called him the sad cold boy <laughs> when we were talking the other day. And he clearly is, there clearly is some sort of underlying sad with Bucky that like already exists. And I don't know if that's because Sebastian Stan can only play sad characters or <laughs> if it's because you can sort of see like the, even with the two of them, you can sort of see the good and the evil, you know, like Steve is the, the perfect perception of all American and Bucky sort of, he's into the women and he's into dancing and he doesn't really have a motive for a lot of what he does except like having a good time. And so I think maybe the serum just enhanced that. And cause clearly he is also very smart, you know, mm -hmm. like he is the one who wants to go to the science expo yep. and he's the one who's really into it. So I think that enhanced his intensity and his focus and his interest in that type of stuff, but also enhanced whatever it was that was already lurking in him before that. And I, I guess it, I would, I would love to know kind of what that was, because it just seems to me every bit that we see of Bucky pre-Serum, it's, you know, between the opening scenes of First Avenger and that, that flashback in Winter Soldier after after Steve's buried his mom. You know, it's like, I oh, she got buried right next to Dad, and with you, till the, with you till the end of the line, and you see Bucky kind of being the older brother, and that's, it's it just seems like that's all you see of him. That's, it's like that's the only thing I know of Bucky pre-serum. He's like protecting Steve, Steve's big brother figure. And so it it does make me wonder if there's a some sort of inner darkness, you know, what where's that coming from? Because it I don't know, to me it doesn't doesn't come out anywhere else. Yeah, he doesn't really get the chance. Like they don't really get the chance to explore that. Sort of in any of the movies. Just that he's, you know, following that stupid punk from Brooklyn. <laughs> Speaking of Speaking of the stupid punk from Brooklyn, um, we haven't talked about Steve much himself yet. Obviously, the, the title character of the movie. I guess, you know, a lot of, you think Captain America, a lot of that just starts with Chris Evans, who's just, who's great in that role. He is Captain America. And of course, you know, this isn't a let's talk about the actors podcast, but I feel like Chris Evans is just so sincere. Like every character that he plays every movie or TV show that I've seen him in, he so clearly is that character. You know, of course, like in Knives Out, like there's no way <laughs> in Knives Out that you could picture him as anything but that jerk, you yeah. know, <laughs> like the awful murderer in the movie. Sorry if you haven't seen that movie. I just spoiled it. But like it's even in, like in Gifted, you know, another sort of more... Which I haven't seen, but I, I want to. I've seen like the trailers. Oh, it's really good. I don't think you'd like it, but I love it. <laughs> Chris Evans in I'll, I will watch it anything that an Avenger is in I will watch once but he so like clearly is Frank Adler is his name and gifted and he's you know this sort of damaged sidelined genius you know with this terrible sad backstory and like he truly is that sad man in the movie and I think that sincerity that he plays sort of all of his characters with helps with Cap because Cap is so sincerely, you know, unapologetically about his morals, you know, like he's about freedom for real freedom. And he's yeah. about, you know, not taking any crap from anybody and not accepting bullies. 
And I think the fact that Chris can play all those different types of characters, like he was, he was on Broadway and he was like an awful guy on Broadway and he was an awful guy in Knives Out, but because he's so sincere, he can play all of those characters and you don't even have to second guess that that's what you're watching. Like there's never a moment where you're like, oh, I'm watching Captain America. You know, it's like, oh, I'm watching this specific character right now. Like, I'm watching this story. Yeah, he just becomes the character, and you believe it. That's a, that's a mark of a great actor. Yeah, he's so he's so versatile. Well, you talked about this. He's. I look at the roles. Admittedly, I haven't seen a fraction of everything he's been in, but he's playing Captain America in the MCU. He was the jerk in Knives Out. You know, he did. I remember just seeing on cable long time ago so i don't remember the substance you know he did not another teen movie he talked about his work on broadway which he he got quite a bit of a claim for if i'm not mistaken uh, he's done he's done a lot of comic book movies I, he's been in the mcu he played johnny storm in fantastic four two movie series back in the aughts you know he's playing you know this real cocky superhero looking for the fame and the glory kind of guy and he did that really well he played uh know this kind of eccentric techie assassin in the losers which is also based on a on sort of a spy thriller comic by dc he was in scott pilgrim i think i mean i never saw that but i think he was in that too he was in snowpiercer which i still haven't seen yet oh. but oh man i know i know this is going to become a snowpiercer podcast real <laughs> quick <laughs> that'll be our yeah so if we get we need to take an, if we need to take a break from Marvel, we'll do a we'll do a supplementary Snowpiercer, Snowpiercer podcast. So. What do you what do you think about Steve as a character? You know, sort of talking about his how sincerely and unapologetically Steve is who he is. What do you think about the characterization as a person who's really into the comics? Like, do you think that they did him justice? Do you think they did did it fairly? I think Chris Evans and the way the writers have written cap I, I think it's it's spot on and you definitely get the sort of the sense of the duty and the honor and all of those kinds of things that comes across very clearly but and i think this is partly due to to chris evans you do you do get the compassionate side of cap which which does show up in the comics especially more recently uh he's not just uh he's not just a a soldier who will blindly follow orders I mean, there's a very famous there's a famous issue of Daredevil in the '80s in which Cap makes a guest appearance, and there's some general who's giving him a hard time for not you know you're not doing your job, you're not doing this, and where's your loyalty, Captain? And he says this this quote that's very famous to comic book fans, you know, you know my only loyalty is to the dream, and it's a very and that's that's the essence of Captain America, and Chris is just really good at playing that. Yeah, you know, I've always wondered. I mean, in in the comics, especially more recently, they talk about Steve's father being abusive towards him and his mother, which of course that's that's never discussed in the movies. It's not even intimated. You you don't know anything about his dad at all, other than you know, that he's dead when we meet Steve. But I of course I have to when I'm watching the movies, I'm I have that in the back of my mind, having read the comics, and so in my mind, I'm thinking that that's part of what's driving him. It's like I don't like bullies, you know even if it's my own father. So, yeah, I think they do him, they definitely do him justice if you're a comics reader. Well, and I like that bait you said about not being a soldier that, you know, just falls in line and follows orders because they touch on that a lot 
like in the one of the main scenes at uh, Camp Lee, where they're thinking like, oh, let's just go with Hodges, like that yeah. that jerk, you know, let's go with Hodges. He's a good soldier. He passed all the tests, but he's like such a jerk. Erskine tells Phillips he's a bully. Yeah. And that's why he picked Steve, because you know he he wanted a compassionate man too. Because the weak man, the weak man understands compassion. The weak man knows what it's like to be weak. Yeah. And he's probably not going to bully people. And yeah, Cap is, in my opinion, he's the heart, not only of the Avengers, but in a way, he's kind of the the heart of the entire MCU up through Endgame. And I, that's one of the reasons I think this movie is so important. It just kind of sets that tone that he's this the heart of this whole sort of the whole good guy universe in the MCU. And so it'll be very interesting to see what, uh, how things go without him in all the future films. So we've talked about Bucky, talked about Cap. There's one more sort of main lead and that's Peggy. Haley Atwell. He's still my beating heart. (laughs) (sighs) Peggy Carter. She's great. She's great. That scene when she, uh, like headshots the driver (laughs) for that spy is so perfect and i think too like they wrote her like they wrote peggy as a character so well in this movie which i think you know is already hard to do because women are often given this sort of static Mm one-dimensional yeah they're only used for the edification of the male main character but there are so many instances in in the movie where Cap almost seems like an imposition to her, <laughs> where she's uh-huh. like trying to do her own thing and she has to keep coming back and being like, you idiot, get it together. And I sort of like that, that she has her own growth sort of outside of him and that she has her own development. And like when Phillips is like, I'm not going to go do this just because you have a crush on him. And she's like, no, I have faith in him. And like, obviously that develops into a crush, but she is being, you know, sincere and legit. As, you know, her character is, I think, when, you know, Peggy says, like, no, it's, you know, I I believe in him. You know, like, I believe in the, you know, the dream, as you said before. Yep. <laughs> like, she, you know, she believes in it. And, you know, I'm not going to hand out cookies for writing a good female character. But, like, it's nice. And it's nice to see it in a time period, you know, like, in the 40s, where you might not be as likely to see a woman cast as sort of such a strong lead. Something that just occurred to me, you're talking about her her abilities and so forth. You know, she makes that awesome headshot of the Hydra driver. She made that headshot not five seconds after a car blew up behind her too. Right. You know, it's to be able to, you know, siphon out that distraction, turn around, make that shot. And she's clearly, she's clearly got skills. She's clearly one of the most, one of the most skilled fighters in the MCU. I, I love Haley Atwell. (laughs) She's so awesome. She brings so many dimensions to that character she does it so well. She's smart. She's sexy. She's capable of taking care of herself. And yet at the same time, she's vulnerable. The final the final scene when Steve goes down, it's like when Steve ditches the plane. I mean, she's just, she's, she's absolutely heartbroken. She's devastated. I mean, Peggy Carter, of all the female characters in the MC Moo, she she's probably my favorite. She's probably my favorite with like like Okoye from Black Panther and, and Natasha Romanoff, maybe right right below her but yeah Peggy Carter is she's the greatest she is she's awesome yeah and I think she's a good like obviously we don't see because I would consider for this movie for Cap Bucky and Peggy to be sort of the three main characters that it's sort of centered around and so I think she's a good like she's a good balance and I think she brings a good sort of like a like just an interesting mix like I don't think it would be as fun if it was Cap and Howard and Bucky 
Yeah. You know, like, if that was the three that they picked. Like, I don't think it would have been as interesting. Like, it would have been nice to see, you know, the sort of, the type of Howard that we see in Endgame. But I think character-wise, you know, Howard wasn't there yet. He was sort of meant to be this kind of one-dimensional, wacky kind of guy. Yeah, that's because that's what we, I guess, at that point, the last we, the only bit we'd seen of Howard Stark were those, uh, like, the film reels and the flashbacks in Iron Man 2. And, yeah, you get that he's this, you know, this womanizer and... And all that. But well, I think you... it set it it sets it up if you watch it in this order. And so when we watch Iron Man, I think it will sort of provide like a good segue into Tony's character and well, sort yeah. of develop Tony from a sort of one dimensional womanizer type of guy to a sort of more complex character. Who else we got? Uh, I love I love Tommy Lee Jones in general, but he's so great as Colonel Phillips. I just love that deadpan delivery of almost every single line in the movie he's still skinny i'm not kissing you he's he does those so well he definitely reminds me as a person who grew up you know in the south around sort of retired military guys like he gives off the exact vibe of all of those guys every guy that i know that was in the military that you know retired to become like a football coach <laughs> for middle school or for high school or which you know whichever it was like he gives off such perfect delivery of that type of person also he's like understandably you know not trusting of the weird science stuff like he sort of tolerates Erskine and he sort of tolerates even Steve to an extent until he realizes just what Steve is capable of doing that might be like a lot of the characters in the MCU but like especially in this movie where everybody sort of at first underestimates Steve and then they realize oh he's for real and then they just jump in wholehearted about it and like even the Howleys are like that like when they're in Azano and they let him out at first they're like who's this guy like Captain America like <laughs> he's knocked out Adolf Hitler over two like what is this two, but then they see him times. and they're like oh He's for real. I'm going to follow that guy. I, I get it. You can see because there's enough of Colonel Phillips in the movie, you can see his development and his growth through it, even as like a side character. He is still pretty central to the movie, moving things forward. Yeah, he's got that all military you know, follow orders kind of thing. And, you know, this this serum stuff is beyond his realm of experience. And he, yeah, he just thinks it's a bunch of hooey. He comes around once he sees... What Steve is capable of. I think, I think the moment he jumps on that grenade, the dummy grenade, is kind of what gets him thinking, all right, there's more to this kid than meets the eye. Well, in that scene with Zola, when they take him prisoner, mm -hmm. and he brings in the steak and the potatoes and the broccoli, and Zola's like, that's my impression of Zola. <laughs> he takes it and starts talking, and he's very matter-of-fact and pretty blunt and just so perfectly delivers that military colonel general feel here's how it's going to be if you're not going to eat that stick i'm going to eat it and a lot of that that's just tommy lee jones that's yeah. just what he does he's been doing that well like that for decades now how about how about stanley tucci as dr erskine he doesn't have a whole lot of screen time you know he's he's dead like 20 minutes into the film but he does so much with that role this is his brainchild the super soldier serum and he's the first one to see steve rogers for who he really is and he's the first one to believe in him there's a certain earnestness that you see in him and this is he sense a certain tiredness in him too this war has worn out on him he talks about how the first country that the nazis conquered 
was their own. You can kind of feel the weight of the war weighing on him because he's lost his homeland, and this is his way to set things right, and Steve is going to be the instrument of that, and he believes in him. I just, you know, I just thought he was really good and for what little we saw of him. Erskine kind of makes me think of Jensen. I was thinking the exact same thing yeah. <laughs> just now. Mm-hmm. It kind of makes me think of Jensen because he's not there for very, very long, but he does so much in terms of growing the main character of the movie and sort of providing an inspiration almost for both of them. Steve is clearly already inspired to do the right thing, but to have that extra push from someone sort of acknowledging his abilities. Well, he he gave him his chance to be enlisted. He's the one who finally let him quote unquote pass. Yeah. And I think he sees Steve for who he really is. And I think that also is the same for Jensen. Jensen sees Tony Stark for who he really is. This sort of flawed, but fully capable of doing the right thing kind of guy. Yeah. Like, as long as you push him, like, you steer him in that direction. And I think the same goes for Erskine of this being there to sort of provide, you know, a reason. At least through the first movie to, like, that initial first right thing to get to get all the events going. Yeah, when I watch well, the later movies and then go back and watch this movie and watch Iron Man and you see Jensen, it's it's like, yeah, I sometimes I forget how pivotal those characters are because, you know, once they're gone in those movies, you don't really see them again. I mean, you see that little cameo with Jensen and the, the flashback at the beginning of Iron Man 3, but other than that, you don't see them anymore and you, my conscious mind, I forget about them, but I go back and watch the older movies and it's like none of this would have happened without them trying to think if i have anything more to say about the commandos <laughs> i don't even remember all their names i mean they're I they're so fun though like the commandos i'm just thinking about all of them all the different little bits that they have to sort of make their characters known that they each sort of have their chance to tell their own part of the story of right. like i'm from fresno ace or like oh, i yeah. went to howard and i studied german and french and they can or... sort of bring a sort of historical lens mm-hmm. like obviously this is a world war ii movie but it's also got a guy with a blinding red face and space toys (laughs) but it did still happen in this framework of how america was obviously like not a whole lot but like where the country was which is you know like a big part of captain america's story you know especially in the comics he was created to get rid of nazis but like there is still this own sort of underlying issues at home that sort of comes to a head like i guess you could say in winter soldier it sort of comes to a head with project insight of like the privacy and data and all that stuff that's like a newer american issue but like back then the american issue was you know the internment camps and segregation yep and so i like that they get that sort of small chance to sort of hit on that mm-hmm. with the Hallies. And I love, I love that whole bar scene. Yeah. Like I love it with all the guys, but I love, and I was going to try and like shoehorn this in when we were talking about Haley and, you know, Peggy's character the entire time, like Bucky is talking, but she is answering his questions, but talking to Steve. To Steve. Yeah. I noticed and that. Clearly. He is being responded to just in the way that she would like to respond, which any woman will tell you we've done that exact thing before, too. But when she walks away, Bucky's like, oh, my God, I'm you. You know, like, I'm being ignored. I can't believe this has happened to me. That's just, the, the role reversal continues. Yeah. Yeah. I guess a good miscellaneous topic, sort of specific to the movie. What is your favorite scene in the movie? I'm going to put you on the spot. My favorite scene in the movie? 
Yeah, I've got, well, there are two that come to mind. My favorite is probably the montage with Cap and the Howling Commandos taking out all the Hydra bases, because you get to see him throw the shield a lot, and it's just a lot of cool action with him. Then putting, throwing the grenades in the tank, and Cap jumping off the tank when it blows up. Very, very comic bookish. So that might be my favorite. It's not really a scene, it's you know that, that montage. That might be my favorite bit in the movie. I wish I could remember the whole... His whole line, but Red Skull's, yeah. you are failing! But the mountain offensives will shape the world and keep me by a simpleton with a shield! And I, I don't remember the whole line, but I just always thought that was a very funny line. So those are probably my two favorite parts of the movie. <laughs> What's yours? I think probably my top favorite. It's sort of like a shared favorite. So my favorite then would be, like in a sort of more lighthearted one, would be the bar scene where Bucky is just distraught that he has become a sort of third wheel to Steve. <laughs> but my favorite, more serious scene is the entire escape from Azano. Mm-hmm. Like when it's just Steve and Bucky trying to get out. And when when Schmidt and Zola show up, you can see, you know, it's clearly the two main, you know, fighters in this scene are, you know, Cap and Schmidt. And they're, you know, they're both sort of head to head. And you can see Zola and Bucky in the background. And the whole time I'm just sort of thinking, what must Bucky be thinking seeing Zola standing over there thinking like, crap, like he's going to take me and I'm going to go back and get experimented on again or whatever Zola was Mm -hmm. doing to him to sort of, you know, pre the fall to make him survive that. And because you can see it in his face too. Not only is he just exhausted, he's like, this guy again. Like, (laughs) Steve just got me out, and I don't even fully believe that Steve got me out, because he's big now. (laughs) Like, I can't, you know, I don't understand. It's like he's he's scared, and it's not something you would think Bucky would feel, but yeah, he doesn't want to go back. Yeah, and you can see, too, like, when Schmidt pulls his fake face off. Right. You can see in, similar to, like, a couple faces that Bucky makes... In the other movies where someone does something like the the claws from T'Challa mm-hmm. in Civil War and he's like, what? Like, what is this? <laughs> and the same with like Spider-Man in the fight at the airport mm-hmm. when he gets webbed and he's again, his face is like, what? Why? Like, he's just exhausted the, all the time. Mm-hmm. It's not so much like pre-serum him, but like post-serum him is just so tired of all of this crap. Like, why is this happening to me? And it just keeps, like, over and over for a hundred years. And, yeah, that's why he just wants to settle down in Wakanda and be peace. Right. (laughs) So that's, I guess that's most of what we had to say about the movie. Just some miscellaneous stuff didn't want to let go by. I talked a little bit about Alan Silvestri's uh, score for the film. He's one of my favorite film composers. You know, this is the first MCU film that he scored. For those of you who don't know Alan Silvestri, I know you're familiar with his work. You've heard his scores for the Back to the Future films, Predator. I think he scored Forrest Gump. I have to check that, but I think he did. He ended up scoring uh, The Avengers and Infinity War and Endgame. Uh, He's probably my favorite composer in the MCU. It's this sort of classic orchestral score, lots of leitmotif, very epic, sweeping, and grand. That Captain America march, I would start humming it right now, but, you know, I don't want to end up getting any nasty cease and desist letters from the Disney company, so I won't. Uh, but it just captures that, that pulpy, Indiana Jones-esque uh, nature to the film. 
I recently re-listened to the score for the first Avenger for the first time in a long time, and I didn't realize there are a lot of themes in there that end up showing up later on in Avengers and in Infinity War and Endgame. They do. You like, can hear it. The fight on the bomber Yep. is in Avengers. Like, mm-hmm. it's a big theme in the first Avengers movie. Yeah. The, uh, the well, the little, that sort of eerie Tesseract theme, which you hear a little bit in, in yeah. First Avenger, that ends up being the first thing you hear in the Avengers when they're talking about the Tesseract. The Tesseract's got its own theme, and, and there are a couple other ones, too, that end up showing up, especially towards the end of Endgame, because, you know, that, that final 40 minutes of Endgame was just kind of Alan Silvestri's way to sort of unload everything in his arsenal at one shot, rightfully so. So I just I couldn't let this pod, this episode go by without talking about the music because I just I love Alan Silvestri. Was there anything else you wanted to add? I don't have anything else. I sort of pushed for. I told myself I wasn't going to embarrass myself about Bucky, but since you were so you were so into Haley Atwell, so I am going to talk about Sebastian Stan for a little bit. His <laughs> okay, I I was I, <laughs> I wanted you to. You're like my you're my Buckyologist. I am. I know. His poor little sad face all the time. It just gets me. Well, and another thing that I like about that scene when they're escaping Asano is once he gets across to the other side and Steve is like, oh, just go, just go. And he's like, no, not without you. And every time I watch that, I'm like, oh, no. (laughs) Like, duh, of course not without you. (laughs) Of course. Like, it's never been without you. The one time in Bucky's entire life that he did anything without Steve was go to war and get captured. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, and like, about that. and then after that, the only thing that he did without Steve was suffer under Hydra. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, of course, not without you. And again, it's sort of the, your buddy, your pal, your Bucky, you know, the, the dig at Steve in Civil War from Crossbones, it's like, oh, he's just so sad. You know, you just gave me something that we should address when we get to Civil War. We need, we'll need to talk about uh, his, how should we say, antagonistic relationship with Sam. Huh. Because it's yeah. kind of like, you know, <laughs> Cap's Steve's old best friend and his new best friend. You know, who will who will win? Who will take uh, the throne? Who, who will wield the shield, <laughs> as it were, if they ever... If they ever finish making that uh, Falcon of the Winter Soldier series, we might get an answer to that. All right. I think that's it for Captain America the First Avenger. Uh, Stay tuned. In a couple more weeks, we will, as we discussed earlier, since we're moving through the movies chronologically, the next up, we go from Captain America to Captain Marvel, which takes place in the 1990s. So we'll be talking about that in a couple weeks. Thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. We'll see y'all later. Have a good night, everybody. See ya.